Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Good afternoon, all. Dr. Rob Dixon here with another episode of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. Today we have our own MD2, Dr. Casey Patrick, with us back from Africa to tell us all about his tales in the subcontinent. Hello, Dr. Patrick. Hello, everybody. And Andy Adams is always with us, our technical guru and all things stroke and trauma on the boards. So getting started, Casey, I mean, we were really excited. Dr. Patrick was gone um, for about six weeks. Five weeks, yeah. Yeah, five weeks in Africa on kind of a, a teaching sabbatical. And the crews obviously noticed that you were absent. You know, during CA, they were like, hey, where's that other guy that works around here? So can you just fill us in? Tell us a little bit about what you what you did while you were in Africa and how you got there, how you got this opportunity uh, to begin with. So, I, correct, I spent five weeks in Uganda. Um, I went over with a group called Global Emergency Care Collaborative, or GEC. Uh, they started up about 10 years ago um, in rural Uganda. There's just for sort of a brief overview, there's really no uh, emergency medicine presence in Uganda. And their goal was to, or is to task shift. There's lots of nurses, no doctors. Um, So they started up about 10 years ago with a training program for emergency care providers is the term they used or ECPs. Uh, The most I think the closest uh, corollary to medical care in America would be, it's almost like a nurse practitioner program. So they take nurses, uh, most of them have to be, you know, they have to be experienced, they have to be, uh, they, they go through a vetting program and ac- application process, and they train them for two years. It's a diploma program. So they, uh, they take them through what, what amounts to um, a condensed emergency medicine education program. And push those folks out into the emergency departments in Uganda to try and alleviate uh, the, the shortage of emergency providers. And they're, uh, they have been, been very successful. Um, they, the program has grown quite a bit over the 10 years. We can talk about that a little more as we, we move along. But my role exactly was, again, as a physician volunteer, I didn't have direct uh, patient care duties. I really was primarily bedside teaching and uh, lecture, uh, classroom uh, didactics. And I, I heard about the program through another podcast and was interesting to me for a couple reasons. You know, a lot of the Doctors Without Borders, Peace Corps type programs are six, 12 months, even longer. With my kids and my responsibilities here in the States, that was uh, not, not a viable option. And then a lot of the other uh, volunteer-type programs tend to be more tourism and, and not much actual teaching or bedside opportunities. And also, I didn't really want to go do primary care. Uh, this was primarily an emergency medicine, emergency care-focused program. And so for me, having the ability to go for five weeks to do something that I felt, you know, on some days at least I could contribute a little bit, it seemed like, like, a, like a pretty perfect opportunity. So I started looking at it about eight months ago. And Thankfully, the administration here at MCHD supported me, you know, taking the time off my my primary uh, emergency medicine uh, job, my, my regular, my, my day job supported me and my family supported me. And That remains to be seen. Well, 
we, we're, we're serving you with papers today, well, doctor. Yeah, I've, I've not gotten any pink slips you've not, yet. You've got no pink slips or no uh, divorce notes for the, no, the, the, my, they're not chasing you down with ballpoint pens no, trying my, to. And my kids uh, recognized me when I got home or actually gave me hugs. So it was uh, all good. So it was, it, it took a lot of, you know, it took a lot of legwork and a lot of planning, but it was definitely worth it. It's awesome. So that's what I have to do to get a hug out of my kids. Just go away Just go and away suffer. Okay. Yeah. Good. So obviously Uganda is a developing country. Talk about some of the differences in emergency compared to what you're used to. Uh, how did it take you out of your comfort zone there? Uh, that's uh, I could go on for, for a while on this one. Uh, let's see if I can sort of condense that one down. Cause that's a huge one. Um, you know, really it, it was night and day. Um, and the way that the five weeks kind of broke down for me was actually a little bit lucky, uh, serendipitous. I, I spent the first two weeks really with no lectures to give. I was primarily just in the department observing bedside teaching when I could. And it was ended up being, like I said, really pretty lucky because what, what happened as I spent those two weeks, I realized that there was, you know, a significant portion of my lectures that was non-applicable, right? I mean, you think about, uh, you know, there's no, there was no emergency department ventilators in, in either of the departments where I worked. So airway management, really not a so topic. so your lung protective ventilation no. strategy fell flat there no there's no we're talking there's no ventilation strategies no push dose nitrates for decompensated hypertensive crisis no iv nitroglycerin no oh, no pressors okay. right okay so, gotcha so yeah i mean you've got you know you've got adrenaline for cardiac arrest but you don't have a dopamine drip or a norepinephrine drip um so a lot of those things it it was it was really good for me to have those first sort of two weeks of shock um, for me of, of, wow, this is really different. Now, at the same time of being shocked how different it was, it was amazing how much they could do um, with what we would consider, you know, uh, really resource-limited environment. Um, you know, one of the big things is kind of got back to the physical exam. You know, without instant ultrasound, instant CT, it was necessary to actually listen to lungs. First First exam, first patient I saw with one of the ECPs, you know, they reached up and took their middle finger on their left hand and their middle finger on their right hand and started tapping on the back. And I was like, oh, yeah, I remember learning how to percuss. And, of course, they percussed down and was dull at the base. The patient had a fever and the cough. Where it was dull, they also had some ronchi. And the patient had pneumonia with a perineumonic effusion that was fairly obvious with a little bit of extra time without the x-ray. The patient did actually, in that case, get an x-ray. It was about four hours later. But we knew the patient, you know, clinically the patient had pneumonia. They were a little hypoxic, a little tachycardic, a fever and cough. So it wasn't, it wasn't a, uh, you know, a super diagnostic dilemma. But actually going back to and thinking about, okay, I don't have an x-ray to order immediately like we do here. Um, so I'm going to take a little more time and listen a little more closely, actually tap. Um, so, yeah, the physical exam became quite a bit more important than it is to us in the, in the American Emergency Department. They were, the ECPs were, were wizards um, at bedside ultrasound. Both sites where I worked, they did have sonocytes. So they had, they had trained extensively. That's been one of their, one of uh, GEC's focus has been training ECPs in ultrasound. And they were much, much, much better than I am with the ultrasound. So that was one area where, you know, they taught me for the most part. Yeah. So it was, uh, you know, they they use ultrasounds for thoracentesis, for paracentesis, for uh, looking for B lines and NCHF, for 
you know, lung sliding and trauma, fast exam. They were very, very adept at using the ultrasound. Um, one of the one of the coolest ultrasound stories was pretty early on. It was in the first week, and we had a patient that had just like one of the similarities between American emergency medicine and Ugandan emergency medicine is you never know, you know, anything about what's really going on with the patient, right? You're operating with about 20% of the story. And so that holds true uh, across, across the continent. Um, it's but, a global axiom, yes, isn't it? We had a patient with a Foley catheter that had broken and he was an elderly gentleman and probably some BPH, maybe some prostate cancer. He had been treated in another hospital, had some incomplete records, but really, he only came in because his catheter was basically broken just a few centimeters distal to, to his meatus. Um, so he just had the, the catheter piece kind of hanging out, and it was, it was leaking everywhere. So I started, I looked at it, and I was like, hmm, I don't know how I'm going to get that out without. Giving it a yank. Yeah, giving yeah. it a yank and giving him an autoterp, which <laughs> didn't, didn't seem like a very pleasant thing to do. That, that It could be diagnostic and therapeutic, doctor. I could get him some biopsy from there, right? Take it, to the, take it to the, uh, down to the lab and smear those cells. I don't think I could read that. Um, so I started thinking, okay, I'm going go to the, go to the balloon channel, right? There's two, there's two lumen, right? The large lumen where the urine passes and then the lumen where you inject, you know, air or saline. And so I started trying to get a syringe in the small lumen to try to somehow pull the, you know, pull the air of the saline out. And I was working with an 18 gauge and trying to use maybe the blunt end of a, of a syringe. And I look over and the ECP had already rolled over the, the ultrasound. And I'm like, oh, you want to see if his bladder is full? I'm, I'm really sure what he's doing. And he grabbed some betadine and he was over rum, rummaging around in one of the cabinets with supplies. And. He came over and he's like, can you just, can you hold this here? And I'm like, yeah, I see the balloon. You know, I visualized the balloon with the ultrasound. And he reached over with the swab and beta donned him over his suprapubic area and took a 18-gauge vinyl needle and popped the balloon, pulled it out. So he did a Sue Combs. He just popped he did, he did a classic. So Casey and I were trained by a, a pediatric EM doctor who uh, would always do the suprapubic Sue Combs tap. And, the first time I saw her do it at IU, it was a non-English speaking family. She walked into the room with a febrile infant and stabbed the baby super pubic uh, to get a urine sample. And I don't know who was going to have a heart attack more, myself or the patient's mother. So it's really something to see, to see someone stick a spinal needle or do a super pubic if you haven't seen it. I mean, it was it was smooth. Like he knew exactly what he was doing. He localized <laughs> it. He, he cleaned the area. He, used, he had sterile gloves on. Like it was it was really impressive, but I didn't, I wasn't 100%, 100% sure what he was doing when he started it. And he clearly had a plan. It was, and of course the- But did he elucidate that plan to you first or did you think he was just stabbing the guy with the spinal needle he, he elucidated it to me as as he was doing the procedure <laughs> and to be honest that was one of the i guess the, the more difficult part of the first couple of weeks was that again i wasn't really in charge of the ecps like these ecps were trained he had probably been through the program six seven years ago he was he was managing his emergency department and so as the volunteer you know physician from america I didn't want to go over and, and tell him how to do his job. I mean, he was better than me at probably 90% of what he did every day as far as infectious disease, ultrasound, you know, resource limited environment. Like, what am I going to do? Go, go over and tell him about how to, how to manage the BiPAP, you know, non-invasive ventilation and, <laughs> uh, you know, CO2 uh, tracings or, like you said, push dose pressors or 
ventilatory strategies. Like, yeah, I mean, I know a lot of things that they don't, but that is not going to help them in their environment. So it was, it was just really, uh, I was like, man, that is, uh, you know, simple yet elegant. And, uh, the patient got a new catheter, went home, happy guy. And could now drain into his bag again and not dial down his leg. So that's a super cool story. Cool. Yeah. Now in my show notes, I have malaria in bold underline underline. Do you want to talk about yeah, malaria? Yeah. So I mean, I probably saved the the one of the more glaring differences uh, to last year, but just the, the the tropical medicine aspect, the infectious disease aspect. Um, you know, there was just there was large large percentage of patients with malaria, a large percentage with HIV. Um, relative to what we see here, obviously. So those infectious disease aspects had to be really combined with all your differentials, right? So if a patient came in with seizures, yeah, maybe they weren't taking their dilantin like it is in America, but it also could be all of the cerebral manif manifestations of both malaria and HIV and numerous others. But again, those two are the, you know, two of the, two of the main ones that we saw. And then, you know, especially with the, with the sick kids, you know, kids that came in with fever, and vomiting, you know, fever and vomiting in America, it's not the same, you know, fever and vomiting in, in the two-year-old, the three-year-old in Uganda, like you can just see like, ah, that kid's dehydrated and sick and limp and it's going to be malaria. And they had both, both sites where I worked, they did uh, rapid smears and they also had a rapid malaria, basically bedside test. So you could know malaria positive or negative really quickly. And it got to be, by the end of five weeks, not that I was a malaria expert by any means, but you could kind of see, like, uh, that kid looks dry, you know, poor trigger, dry lips, uh, you know, no urine output, like, ah, it's malaria, and it, it would be malaria. So that had to be kind of incorporated into all your, all your differentials, every single patient. Now, what about EMS? Now, you're an EMS medical director here at MCHD. Talk about the Ugandan EMS system. What was that like? Well, the... My, my five weeks when I was there, the training ECP, so my, the second site that I worked, the ECPs were not, they weren't finished with the program. So my lectures were to actually, were actually to the ECP trainees. And it was a train the trainer style, or it is a train the trainer style program. So the ECPs that finish, some of the stronger ones have been a task with basically being the bedside teachers for the incoming classes. And so during the second three weeks, I was assigned some lecture topics to give, you know, basic classroom PowerPoint style lectures. And one of them was, or the, I guess the gist, because they were out of session, it wasn't, it was a lot of the non-clinical emergency medicine topics. So they had done their cardiology month and their ENT month and their trauma month. So since they were out of their, their rotation, they kind of cobbled together some lecture topics for me to give and some of them sounded interesting but some of them were I, I was unsure as to where it was going to go i got you know ed triage and flow uh, disaster medicine and ems basically set up you know systems and delivery sort of sort of as a topic and i was like you know how am i going to talk about ems in a place where there really is no ems um and they're really you know really about 40 40 years behind our structure here they have ambulances um, but the ambulances are, for the most part, private. Um, there's really no credentialing, no certification, so you really don't know exactly what's or who is picking you up, and most of the time, they will only pick you up for a fee, and they'll take you to their clinic, and so if you have money to pay them, that you can pay them to pick you up, and then they go to the clinic and, and uh, continue your care there, which is, you know, if you know what you're getting, that's okay, but there's no 911 system. There's no system where everyone can get 
911 uh, EMS service. So again, how this was gonna, how I was gonna teach EMS to, to uh, students and trainees who really had no concept of what our EMS is here was, I wasn't quite sure what, what I was gonna get into. Luckily enough, or I mean, it was really almost serendipitous, I guess, the Ministry of Health, who dictates all the healthcare initiatives and healthcare dollars in Uganda, was actually on site at Masaka Hospital, where I was during the second three weeks while I was there to hold meetings about basically the development and um, funding for EMS systems in Uganda. So they were actually in meetings about setting up an EMS system while I was giving my lecture. So what I thought was going to be really boring and hard for them to understand um, actually ended up being probably one of the most well-received of the uh, six or seven lectures that I gave. So we just talked about stripped EMS back to the basics um, as far as what, what do you have to do to start an EMS system, right? You have to have a curriculum. So everybody has to be on some, just like in the States, if you call an ambulance in Maine or Florida, uh, Seattle or uh, you know, San Diego or anywhere in between, you're going to know for the most part what you get based on their level of training, right? If you get a BLS crew, you can kind of assume what a BLS crew can or can't do. If you get a paramedic crew, you're going to know that they have skills and uh, protocols that are probably going to be more involved and potentially more invasive, more complex. And so we talked a lot about just how you have to take the steps of curriculum, credentialing, uh, training, to level the playing field so you know know what you know you create this class of emergency provider that really doesn't exist there and to start you have to lay that foundation and that groundwork otherwise you know you can't have it be a crapshoot be in any kind of uh, control over over care right um, so it was uh, uh it was right now ems plays really probably a small role there but i, I think judging by the the ministry's push hopefully in the coming years that that can change because obviously that would be a, a benefit for the patient population all right so you got to get to the uh, top three bizarre or really interesting cases i told the crews when you were away that you were going to come back with some really good bizarre cases for them some of the ones that you and i talked about while you were away so yeah these are these are three sort of off the top of my head i probably could give you 33 um, one of the first ones was a bizarre, just really more from a timeline standpoint. And it was probably the first patient or second patient that I saw when I went into the ED. And basically the first couple of weeks I would get breakfast and just head over to the emergency department and stay till, till things slowed. Um, so I was in, you know, eight or nine until eight or nine, 10, and just kind of hung out and was, uh, it was really, really interesting to watch the flow and to watch their approach and to watch people do it differently than we do. But one of the second patients that second or third that came in was a, a young twenties trauma patient. And my family was uh, obviously nervous for various reasons with me going, you know, my wife had seen reports of Ebola in, in the DRC, which the DRC is, is uh, next, next door, right next door, isn't it? <laughs> Again, next door in quotes, because, you know, infrastructure wise, road wise, what's a hundred miles there. You can't travel as quickly when roads aren't paved and you have rutted out brick mud, you know, brick hard uh, clay mud to drive over versus a highway uh, in, in America. So the DRC is close in the sense that it is the country to the, the west from Uganda, but it's not terribly close in the sense of how, the, you know, how fast you could travel. Um, but I told her really quickly, like, yeah, I know you're worried about Ebola, but it's, it's traffic. Uh, traffic was, was uh, a madhouse and there's a lot of, uh, a lot of motorcycles 
what they call boda bodas. And there are a lot of boda accidents, no helmets, just, you know, it just seems like a constant flow of head injuries. So for all you listeners out there, if you do ride motorcycles, please wear, wear a helmet. Um, but they brought this young, young gentleman in and he was clearly altered, uh, GCS of, of eight or nine, big frontal scalp hematoma with the lack, and went through the primary and secondary survey, uh, did the fast exam, really seemed to be an isolated head injury. And so I look over and the ECP's got the IVs placed and is, I look over and they're hanging meds. Like, what, what are they giving? Like, what's going on? And I said, what, what, what are you giving? He was like, phenobarb and mannitol. I was like, phenobarb and man. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, good, good idea. That makes sense. And I'm sure that was probably the hundredth person in the past two weeks that he's given the cocktail to. And I got ready to get high-pitched voice, like, what are you doing? Uh, flustered with him. And I'm sure for him, it's like, dude, this is just, this is just oxygen. This is, this is how you practice I, without I, this, a CT scanner. This is just breathing oxygen, <laughs> right? This is what we do. And so... Yeah, I mean, it was it, it, the 180 degrees from what, from what we right, did. But the, right. we were four, four hours from the closest CT scanner. So patients got a GCS of nine and got a big head bonk. And I mean, the best you can do is to try to, you know, try to relieve the pressure and prevent the seizure that's going to come. And so it was uh, really, a, an, you know, the case in and of itself wasn't that interesting, but it was an eye-opening early uh, sort of baptism into what, what, you know, the differences that we we're going to see. Pretty early on, we saw couple patients in the same day with Caltic poisoning. And I did not know what Caltic was, but Caltic is uh, a pesticide fertilizer type uh, liquid that they use in Uganda. And patients will at times use it when they attempt self-harm. So we had a, a gentleman that decided to drink some Caltic in an effort to harm himself and his family found him unconscious and brought him in, and his heart rate was 30s, 40s, and his sats were in the 50s, and he sounded really wet throughout all his lung fields. And I know here at MCHD, we spend a lot of time on our recredentialing exams, and it's always a, a hot topic question to talk about organophosphates. And yeah. I know that every time we step into a shed or a backyard garage and we smell something a little funny, our antenna go up for, for OGP poisoning. and uh, I know that in my personal experience, I, I've never seen one like that before. Um, he had all uh, Dr. Dixon's favorite killer bees. Should I make a bee sound right now? Yeah, Andy. He had he had <laughs> cue the bees, but it was uh, cue the killer bees, please. It, it was uh, profound and uh, unlike any that I'd ever seen. And we were uh, well past 30 milligrams of atropine before his sats started to pop up and his lungs started to dry out. So it was it was the real deal. And uh, really, a, really an interesting case. They, uh, they did uh, lavage his uh, stomach, which I think most poison controls here in the States would, would advise against. But again, there's no, you know, we're not going to intubate him, right? He's, right. he's you know. So there's no ventilator. There's no ventilator. So in the, in the case of, well, what, what if he aspirates? Well, he's going to aspirate if you don't get it out. And it, I mean, the whole emergency department just smelled like just that sort of. Uh, like pesticide, bug killer. Bug killer. Yeah, it was just. <laughs> It was pretty rank, but that was, I mean, by the time he finished lavaging, the lavage clear and the patient got a boatload of atropine. And, and how much was that doctor? You have it in the uh, notes. Yeah, 30 plus milligrams and they were the glass ampules. So we just broke, 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 broke. And 
drew him up and just kept pushing. We'd look over and his heart rate would drop a little bit and we'd push another, you know, two or three milligrams at a time. And that was over probably not much more than an hour to 90 minutes. So it was, uh, it was a really cool case. And then the last one, I'll tell our listeners just to uh, uh, maybe do a little bit of MCHD paramedic education while we're talking. And uh, we had a, a young patient, 30s, uh, early 30s, with in florid uh, cardiogenic shock. Uh, pressure was in the 80s. Heart rate was uh, around, a, around 100. Pedal edema. And his heart failure was, was from uh, valvular dysfunction secondary to uh, past history of rheumatic heart disease. So he had bad valves and was, was in uh, acute cardiogenic shock from that. And as I said before, there's not, there's not access to an ICU, to ventilators, to vasopressor drips like we're used to. So the ECP and the uh, uh, internal medicine physician that was caring for the patient, you know, that's a, without a ventilator and without pressors, I mean, cardiogenic shock's tough for me to deal with, with all the tools in my box here in America. It was, you know, they asked, what, you know, what would you do, Dr. Patrick? And I said, well, I'd probably hang a presser drip of some sort and, you know, consider non-invasive ventilation versus endotracheal intubation. And none of those things are options here. But they do have ampules of adrenaline readily available in the, in the ED. So I said, you know, there is something that we can do that's not, not drip form. We don't have to go to the pharmacy and, and mix anything. I said, have you guys ever given push-dose pressers? So we did just like in our protocol, a milliliter of uh, cardiac epi and nine of saline. And we talked about how to calculate the concentration and we had our 10 mox per mil of, of push dose epi and we gave 20 every 15 or 20 minutes. And they were really excited when his pressure was quickly 120. Um, and he actually- It's magic. Yeah, and his, his mental status perked up a little bit. What I didn't want to tell them was with that end-stage valvular disease and cardiogenic shock, in Uganda that his outcome was probably going to be pretty poor and he did pass the next day but it was an interesting sort of physiological pharmacological experiment and I did use a little bit of our own protocol to to try to help the poor the poor young man but his again in cardiogenic shock with valvular disease yeah you got a, a surgical fix there that they just don't have no 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 access there so those were those were probably my three that's fantastic. Uh, coolest cases, yeah. That's great. Taking our MCHD protocols global. Thank you very much, doctor. Yeah. All right, so what about the funniest story? So you gave us a couple of really interesting cases. Give us your kind of funniest story or one of them. We had a, uh, we're having a discussion about a patient with a large epidural hematoma. We we're looking at some, uh, this patient actually had been to a private hospital with a CT scanner. So anytime somebody came with CT films, everybody wanted to huddle around and look. And so we were looking at the CT films and we we're having a discussion about subdural, epidural, and, uh, you know, just how these appear on, on CAT scan and how you can tell the difference. And the attending physician was just to my left and he was probably 50 and very, uh, very professional, very, you know, white coat, pressed, slacks, dress shoes, like very professional, unlike myself. And he's got his cell phone in his pocket and it, the ringtone goes off and it, it was funny to me. It was, uh, you know, fun, you know, the, the pop band fun that had a couple. You know, hits. actually, I don't know that. I know that you and Chief Anderson do. So would you mind be kind enough just to hum a bar if no, the can, trademark I, gods won't be angry no, with I'm us? Not, or I'm not going to. I'm not going to hum along. Come on, Chief. I know you can. But let's just say, let's just say fun is uh, very American sounding and his ringtone was some nights. And I just thought that was 
it was very random and we were looking at the CAT scan how many thousands of miles away from uh, from the states and uh, this very put together professional Ugandan physician he likes fun too so I thought that was kind of cool actually so those those are about as about as funny as I can get um, hopefully the uh, hopefully fun doesn't come after me no that's a great way to to wrap it up so in in just the last couple of minutes Casey can you talk to the listeners about GEC and how they would get involved in this if if they were interested so yeah if you're if you're interested in, in checking these folks out Global Emergency Care Collaborative GECC or GEC um, is the group that I went with their website's easy it's globalemergencycare.org um if you want to check out, they do work entirely from donations and grant funding. You know, sort of quick stat. There's one doc for every 10,000 people in Uganda. And that would be the equivalent of having 50 total doctors in all of Montgomery County. So, I mean, it'd be like having, uh, you know, there's 50 doctors if you threw a rock out the window here at MCHD. When you think about the hospitals that are all yeah. within... You with know, all within a uh, stone's throw. Stone's throw, yeah. So the advancement of emergency care in Uganda is uh, definitely something that is needed. And as far as the effort that GEC has made in the past 10 years, I can attest to the fact that they are making a difference. The ECPs do uh, amazing work. Uh, I'm, I'm proud to have, uh, have been associated with them in just the small way that I was. And I definitely think they're a group worth supporting and worth checking out. So again, www.globalemergencycare.org. If you have questions or um, uh, would like to talk further with me about the trip or about how to contribute or about what what, what we did or, or what the group is about, please feel free to shoot an email to the podcast email. I'd be happy to answer any and all. All right, that's a great way to wrap it up. Uh, this is Dr. Rob Dixon with our Associate Medical Director, Casey Patrick and Jordan Anderson. Andy on the boards. We'll see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, Incompetech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.